0: Good morning, my name is Lauren Shirley, if you don't know me, and I am Cindy Palmer's daughter, and I'm the communications director here, and sometimes they let me from back out of the sound booth to, to come up and speak, so um, I'm grateful for the opportunity. So today we want to talk about some of our family stories, so I'm going to start with sharing a couple of ours, um, and then we're going to move on into into what the scripture was talking about. Growing up, I loved our regular Palmer Family Gatherings. We got together fairly often, um, especially when we were younger, and whenever we got together, inevitably, we'd start sharing old family stories, most of them happening before I was born, but I loved to hear the stories. And we're probably not unique in this tradition, you probably share family stories as well, and you might even have a character in your family, like my great-aunt, Johnny Palmer. Aunt Johnny was a character character. She uh, had mellowed some by the time I met her, later in her life, Um, and she could be kind and generous, but she was a force to be reckoned with. And uh, there there are many stories about her, but I'm just going to tell a couple today. She never married, and so she had dogs that she treated like children. And interestingly enough, this actually didn't cultivate good behavior in these dogs, Um, And so there was one dog in particular, I think we have a picture of him, and his name was Angel. Now, it probably should have been Legion, or at least Demon, but his name was Angel, and his favorite hobby was biting people. And so, for years, Aunt Johnny carried bandages and hydrogen peroxide in her purse to deal with these injuries, until a lawyer, friend of the family, convinced her that was probably not a good idea to have those on hand. Anyway, so she stopped that, but Angel didn't stop anyway. So whole thing. So he was Aunt Johnny's baby. So even though he was not a particularly great dog, we had to be uh, creative in how we retaliated against him. So there's a whole slew of family stories about Angel uh, that was born. And so anyway... Years, you know, this dog was dead long before I was born. And last year, Mom and I went to Colorado to visit my great aunt, Bobby. And she's the last surviving member of my grandmother's generation. And she moved to Colorado to be near her son some time ago. And we probably hadn't seen them in 15 years. So we're catching up, having dinner, and then we start telling old family stories. And I was fascinated to hear my first cousin, once removed, start telling angel stories. So it turns out, the same stories I had grown up hearing, my second cousin had also grown up hearing, even though our paths rarely crossed, we grew up hundreds of miles apart, but because of a crazy dog that's been dead for, you know, 35 years, suddenly we had this connection we didn't have a few minutes ago. And so that's the power of stories, of family connections, and remembering those things together. And so as humans, we tell stories. We retell stories. We create cultures around the stories that we share together. And God knows this. He knows that we're hardwired this way to share stories. And so he commands us in scripture, in a multitude of places, tell the story. Tell it again and again and again. And make sure each generation hears it. And so in the passage we read just a few minutes ago, God commands the people of Israel to pass down the stories to their children and to answer their questions. Why do we do things the way we do them? He says, answer them. Talk about them at home. Talk about them on the road. Talk about them when you're in groups, when you're worshiping together. And so God knew that we sometimes forget to tell our stories, the stories of God especially. And so he created the entire Israelite calendar to revolve around opportunities to tell the story. They were slaves for hundreds of years in Egypt, and as God's preparing to bring them out of Egypt, He gives them very specific instructions. But it's not what you might think. It's not the best route to get out or things to pack. He basically tells them how to throw a dinner party. Here's how you cook the lamb, here's how you cook the bread, make sure you invite the neighbors so there's no leftovers. And it seems a little bit odd. Why does God care about their last meal in Egypt? It's because He wants them to repeat that meal again and again, and again, for thousands of years, every year, so that each generation, one after another, would grow up hearing the same story. And it wouldn't just be something that happened in the past. It would be something they would experience. They would relive it. They would step into the story themselves and hear the story and ask the questions until it became their own story. And so we see this throughout Israelites' History And so they heard, kids growing up would heard, we were slaves in Egypt, but the Lord rescued us. And it was a personal thing. It wasn't a really dry history lesson that, you know, four score and two centuries ago, your great-great-grandfather was a slave, and it was terrible, but then God rescued him. It was personal. Son, this is our story. This is what God did for you. This is what he did for me. He rescued us. This is our story. And so, God set it up so that each generation would hear the same thing. He sets up feasts and celebrations every year. They're required to attend at least three of these festivals every year. The Feast of Passover, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of uh, Tabernacles. And so, he spread them out so that their whole year revolved around this. And the spring, and the summer, and the fall. And so, three times a year, they had to stop what they were doing and go to the temple and worship But again, it's not just a a passive, you know, this is what used to happen. It was something God had them act out and experience for themselves. So at Passover, they relived the meal. They relived what it was like to escape Egypt. At Tabernacles, they slept outside for a week to remember God's faithfulness and bringing them through the wilderness. That we slept in tents. We didn't have a permanent home. We were wanderers. But God brought us to our own land. He gave us houses and cities, and we remember his faithfulness. We remember his provision. And so for a week, we're going to sleep outside and see the stars and remember God's promises to us. And maybe we'll think about the people that don't have a roof over their head the other 51 weeks of the year. Maybe we'll remember how we're to live out God's covenant to each other even as we remember his faithfulness to us. And so because of God's brilliance and his understanding of how stories affect us, each generation became an active participant. Every person was an active participant in God's story. Now, this didn't always work, um, but it's how God designed it to work. Um, And so it's not only on a corporate level that the whole nation comes together to remember, but it's also a personal thing. Each adult had a responsibility to tell the story to the next generation. And so we see this command not only in Deuteronomy, not only in the law, but repeated centuries later. In David's time, we see it in the Psalms. And so in Psalm 78, the psalmist declares, The things we have heard and known, things our ancestors have told us, we will not hide them from their descendants. We will tell the next generation... The praiseworthy deeds of the Lord. His power and the wonders he has done. He decreed statues for Jacob. And established the law in Israel. Which he commanded our ancestors to teach their children. So that the next generation would know them. And even the children yet to be born. And they in turn would tell their children. Then they would put their trust in God. And would not forget his deeds. But would keep his commands. Now. We know Israel didn't always do this. And in fact, the rest of the chapter of Psalm 78 is a pretty much a scathing critique of how Israel failed to do this. Because when we stop telling God's story, we stop worshiping him. And when we stop celebrating, the, when Israel stops celebrating the feast, and they stopped remembering God's faithfulness and his provision, they looked for it in other places. They started worshiping the other gods, the false gods of Canaan. And telling the stories of Baal and Asherah and practicing their rituals instead. So instead of trusting God for provision, they started sacrificing their children in hopes that Baal would send rain for their crops. When we forget God's story, the story of the culture around us takes over our lives. Worship doesn't happen without remembering. And remembering doesn't happen without storytelling. And the best storytelling is not just words, although we have to use words, but the best storytelling is when my words direct my life and when I live in such a way that I reflect the goodness of God and when together as a community we live in such a way that we reflect who he is and who he has proven himself to be throughout time. And so it's important for us to know that the pattern in Scripture is both communal and individual storytelling for the next generation. And this is something that carries over into the New Testament. Jesus does it himself as he initiates uh, what we know now as Holy Communion. He's riffing off the Passover, and he initiates a sacred meal for his followers. That's not just a one-time occurrence. He tells them to repeat it often in remembrance of him. The Greek word for remembrance is anamnesis. It's not recalling facts that have no impact on your life. It's an active remembrance. It's remembering and responding. It's remembering and choosing to live in a different way. Because you've heard the story and it hasn't just been something that goes in one ear and out the other. It doesn't just rattle around in your head. But it seeps into your bones. It becomes the heartbeat of your life. Because when we realize what God's story is and what it can do for us, it changes us. It changes the way we see the world. It changes our understanding of why things are the way they are. And what we're supposed to do about the broken world we live in. It changes us. And so we remember salvation history, this whole huge story of God. What he's done from the very beginning throughout the scriptures until now. We don't remember it because the facts are important. We remember it because it's our story. It's our family legacy. And God calls us, just like he called the generations before us, to step into that story and participate in it with him. We remember the whole story, that God created the world and he made it good. And he created us very good in his image. But we messed everything up. But from the very moment of the fall, God was at work already with a rescue plan to save the world And he invited humans into his story to participate with him. And so you know the stories. We've heard them all our lives, for most of us. We've heard the stories of Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Moses and Miriam, Joshua, Ruth, David, Isaiah, Daniel. And so these are the stories that give us context for our lives, even though it's happening thousands of years later. Because sometimes we see that they did well. Sometimes they completely failed, but always, always God proved himself faithful. And so we can turn to the scriptures and find that confidence and know that it will be true for our lives as well. Paul tells us in Romans 15 that whatever was written in earlier times, the Old Testament, was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. The story gives us strength and inspiration when we have nothing left in the tank. It reminds us of who we are, the children of God. And it reminds us of who he is, the king of the universe, who can do immeasurably more than anything we can ask or imagine. It shows us what we're called to do, and because of how God has proven himself over and over and over again, we have confidence when he calls us to step into the story and to participate in it with him for the world around us today. And so the early Christians knew this as well. And so as they're figuring out how to transition from the worship of Judaism, which we see in the Old Testament, uh, to the full revelation of God in Jesus Christ... They develop systems and liturgy to help them do this, to help them remember the story and worship God well. And so liturgy often has kind of a a negative connotation for some of us, but it literally means the work of the people. It's based on the idea, the truth of scripture, of the priesthood of all believers, that in Christ Jesus, all of us have a responsibility to worship and to minister in community with each other, to encourage each other, to minister to each other, to minister on behalf of Christ in the world. And so that means we're all called to minister and to encourage each other. It, certainly the clergy encourage us, but we as lay people are also called to encourage them. And the liturgy allows for a back and forth conversation about the goodness of God in which we remind ourselves of what God has done throughout the ages and his faithfulness. In which we invite each other to the dance of God's grace in a way that some traditions just don't have room for that back and forth conversation. And so it's this incredibly beautiful thing where we get to encourage each other. And everyone, pastor and people, hears the truth of the gospel directed at them. We get to speak truth to them just as they speak it to us. And so together, as we come in the communion liturgy, we confess that together we're broken. And together we celebrate that we're forgiven. Together we remember what God has done. We remember how he created the world. And how he loved us when we rejected him. And he sought us out. And he chased after us, showing himself to us through the law and the prophets And ultimately, through his son, Jesus, we celebrate the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Together, we expect the Holy Spirit to renew and transform us into the body of Christ so that we can serve the world. Together, we eat and we drink and we celebrate God's grace in physical, tangible ways that we can see and touch and taste. But it's easy to rush past all of that when we're just kind of going through the slides. If we don't really take time to explain what is happening in the communion liturgy. So today as we come to the table, we're going to do it a little bit differently. I'd like to invite you to pray the whole thing with me, not just the responsive parts. And we're also going to pause and talk about it as we do it. In hopes that as we understand the liturgy in a deeper way, it becomes more meaningful to us. And it's another way that we get to participate in God's story as told throughout the ages. And so the liturgy gives us snapshots, the highlight reel, if you will, of the story. So I have pulled some images, actually, from what Sarah was using earlier, the Jesus Storybook Bible. Um, so those will be on the screen behind us as well. If you're not familiar with the Bible as One Big Story, that book is an excellent place to start. If you're a Scrooge and you don't like children's pictures, there's even a version without <laughs> pictures called the story of God's love for you. So one of those two, pick it up. It's worth it, I promise. Um, so we put as we come to the table today, you need to know this is the table of the Lord. It's not the table of our congregation. It's not the table of the United Methodist Church. If you're seeking the grace of God, you're welcome to come and participate with him today. So we're going to begin with the invitation And it's going to be on the screens. And again, if you're willing, I'd like you to read the whole thing with me because it's a different experience when we engage it in a different way. So as it comes up, let's read together. Christ, our Lord, Lord invites to his table table all all who who love him, him, who who earnestly repent repent of their their sin and and seek to live live in peace with one one another. another. Therefore, let let us confess confess our sin before God God and one another. So we confess our sin publicly because our sin doesn't just affect us. It affects the community. And I know just as there are ways I have not represented Christ well this week, there are ways we as a whole big global church have not represented Christ well this week. So we confess together and we receive forgiveness together, all of us as a community. So let's move to the confession and pardon. um, And would you pray with me? Gracious Gracious God. We confess that we have not always loved you with all of our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength. And we have not always loved our neighbor as much as we have loved ourselves. As individuals and as your church, we have not always done your will. Our disobedience has been expressed by breaking your laws, not caring enough about the needy, and And even even rebelling rebelling against your presence in our hearts hearts and minds.
1: At times we we have failed to do do that which we should have done, even to a greater extent than we have done what we we should not have done.
0: done. Forgive us in Christ's name we pray.
1: Send send your your spirit spirit upon us and renew a right spirit in in us. Thus freeing us once again for joyful obedience obedience and service, service through through Jesus Christ Christ our Lord.
0: Amen. The next part is the pardon. So it will go. Hear the good news. News. Christ Christ died died for for us while while we were yet sinners. sinners. That that proves God's love toward us. us. In In the name of of Jesus Christ, Christ, you you are are forgiven.
1: forgiven. In In the the name name of Jesus Christ, Christ, you are are forgiven. forgiven. Glory to to God. God. Amen. Amen.
0: So this next part is the great thanksgiving. And the first section is kind of a back and forth conversation. And this has been going on in some form or another for 1700 years at least. We have records from the Jerusalem church in the 300s doing the same back and forth conversation. The same essential language here, translated obviously. Modern English wasn't a thing. Um, But this is, again, where you see the priesthood of all believers. We're encouraging each other, calling each other to worship, blessing each other, just like I would on an individual level. Before the service, uh, Chiv said, God be with you. That's about what we're going to say here in just a second. Um, That's what we do all the time. It's just we do it all together um, in this moment. And we say, okay, whatever we brought in with us, all of our hopes, our fears, the good things that happened this week, the bad things that happened this week, we lift them all up to God and say, God, everything that's in my heart, I give it to you. I give it to you, and I will worship you regardless of what's going on because you are worthy to be worshiped. And so that's what we're going to do now. Um, And this is something, this is part where we're actually saying it to each other. So if there's someone next to you and you actually want to look at someone and say it, um, that's totally okay at this moment. So let's begin Uh, With this next section. The Lord be Be with you. you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up up to the Lord. Lord. Let Let us us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is is right to give our thanks thanks and and praise. Everything that follows this is one continuous prayer to the Father, and so we get to the very last amen. So it's a continual thing, and it's Trinitarian, we're talking to the Father, and we reference what Jesus does and what we're asking the Spirit to do, but it's directed to the Father. And again, it's reminding us, and reminding Him in a sense, of this is what you've done through the ages. This is how you've proved your faithfulness. And right now, we're responding to your faithfulness and asking you to move in our lives right here and right now. So let's pray together through the next sections of the great thanksgiving. It is right right and a a good and and joyful thing, always and everywhere, to give give thanks to you, Father Almighty, creator creator of heaven and earth. You formed us in your image and and breathed into us the breath of life. life. When When we turned away and our love failed, your love remains steadfast. You delivered delivered us from from captivity, made made covenant covenant to be our sovereign God, and and spoke spoke to us through your prophets. So even though we've turned away time and time again, the prophets spend a lot of time critiquing more than, hey, you're doing great, you know, and that's true of our lives as well, that we often need to return to the Lord, to repent and turn back to him, and he's always calling us to that. And so even though we fail, God invites us and calls us up into the worship of heaven. And that's what we do in this next part. We see these glimpses with Isaiah and John and Revelation of the throne room of heaven. And every time there are angels, they're constantly saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And so as we participate in this next part, we're joining the worship of heaven and all creation, which is really an incredible privilege. So let's, let's continue the prayer together. And so now with that last part, we shift to what was prophesied over Jesus as he rode into Jerusalem. And so now we shift to looking at the life of Jesus and what he did for us. And so again, we have snapshots, the major things that happened in Jesus' life. Um, And so it summarizes the gospel here. And so no matter how terrible the sermon is, whether it's a rookie preacher or a wishy-washy veteran, the liturgy gives the gospel faithfully. It's chock mm-hmm. full of scripture, and every time it's read, the gospel is proclaimed. So let's continue as we look at and remember the life of Jesus. Holy are you, and blessed is your Son, Jesus Christ. Your Spirit anointed him to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives, and a recovery of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to announce that the time had come when you would save your people. He healed the sick, fed the hungry, and ate with sinners. By the baptism of his suffering, death, and resurrection, you gave birth
1: to your church, delivered us from slavery to sin and death, and made with us a new covenant by water and the Spirit.
0: Look at the pronouns here. It inserts us into the story. Um, and so you delivered us from slavery, made a covenant with us. Jesus will be with us always. And again, it's not about just what happened in the past, but it's what we're experiencing now. And it's what we carry on into the future as we continue to tell the story, as we live it out. So let's, let's finish with what Jesus did for us when he ascended, and then what he did is he instituted communion. When the Lord Jesus ascended, he promised to be with us always in the power of your words and Holy Spirit. On the night in which he gave himself up for us, he took the bread, gave thanks to you,
1: broke the bread, gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
0: Some of the early Christians from the 300s, we have some of their writings, and the early Christians, some of them called the sacrament not communion or the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist, but they called it the offering, and the idea is if Christ has given everything for us, how can we not offer ourselves completely to him? And so this is a moment for us to be re-energized and recommissioned to be the body of Christ, As Methodists, we do believe that communion, what we do here, is a sacrament. And all that means is that we're not simply remembering from a distance. It's not just thinking about an event that happened thousands of years before we were born. We believe this is a means of grace for us, right here, right now. From a biblical perspective, grace is personal. It's another way of saying when we experience God's grace in this moment... It's a way to say that God is sharing himself with us in the deeply personal way. So these, through these physical elements, we experience Jesus in a way that nourishes us spiritually. Even though we can't exactly explain it or understand what's going on. Uh, but we experience him in this moment, in this bread and wine, in a way that is different than anything else you might eat. You might eat tacos for lunch. It's different than that. It's, it's, it's something that we experience spiritually that physically um, is unique about what happens here. And so this next part of the prayer is called the Epiclesis. It's asking the Father to send the Holy Spirit on the bread and wine. That we would experience Jesus together in this moment in a unique way. And that we would become more like Christ. That we would actually become the body of Christ... And carry on his ministry in the world. So this consecration is always led by a pastor. Because that is part of their unique calling to minister to us on behalf of God. Pour
1: out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here. And on these gifts of bread and wine. Make them be for us the body and blood of Christ. That we might be for the world the body of Christ. Redeemed by his blood. And now, with the confidence of the children of God, let us pray the prayer he taught us to pray. Our Our Father, Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy thy will be done, done on earth as it is is in heaven. Give give us us this day day our daily bread, and and forgive us our trespasses, trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil.